If you have your Bible, open to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 tonight. We come to chapter 24. We will not make it through the entire chapter. In fact, I don't even know that we'll make it close to the end, but we're going to try to cover a good section of it. These next two chapters, 24 and 25, are going to be dealing with biblical prophecy. And as you study biblical prophecy, it's important to understand and know that there are many different opinions and people have taken different stances and positions over the years. And, you know, they think, especially even in Matthew 24, when, it, when certain parts are going to be fulfilled and when they, you know, some have already been fulfilled, some of its future. And, and there's, there's always kind of a discrepancy there. Um, and I think it's always important to remind you that I am teaching from a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial perspective, which means I believe there's a future tribulation coming. I believe Christ will take his church off of the earth. Those that believe in him will be what we call raptured up into heaven. It's not Christ coming to earth, but it's us. He's coming to meet us in the air. But then I also believe at the end of the tribulation period, Christ will come back with us. That's his, will be known as his second coming, where he will return to earth to rule and reign to, uh, to it'll be the completion and we will rule and reign alongside of with him, which will institute or begin the millennial reign, which is a thousand years of physical reign that Christ will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And I say that's important because when you start to study biblical prophecy, you'll hear words like the second coming. Well, the second coming isn't the, isn't the rapture of the church, it's his return to, Christ, to earth for the second time during the rapture again I just want to make sure you understand he's meeting us in the air we're going up he's not coming to stay on earth he's just grabbing the church and taking us with him and as we study these prophecies I think you'll start to see that if you'll keep that perspective in mind it'll make things a little bit easier for you to understand Um, I will tell you if you've never studied biblical prophecy before, chapter 24 and chapter 25 can be a little bit confusing. Uh, if you find yourself going, well, I'm not sure I'm following, I'm not sure I understand it, this is the first time I've ever heard that, it's perfectly normal to go, I'm not sure I get it, it's okay. Sometimes it takes and many years, perhaps, many, many studies and different places in Scripture for things to begin to sink in, so don't get discouraged by that. Just try to follow along as much as you can, and like I always do, I'll try to simply teach the Bible simply, but sometimes the Bible gets into some complex things. And in, even in chapter 24, we're going to, or I'm just going to let you know, there's a couple different interpretations of it. One side believes that all these things, or majority of these things, almost all of them, were fulfilled in the first century. So some, one, one group of believers, and there are brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not that they're not saved, we just have a different opinion of end times. They say, what we're about to read in chapter 24, it's all already happened. They said it's already taken place, uh, it's, it's already done, it was fulfilled uh, in the, in the, by the end of the first century, most of it in 70 AD when, when uh, Jerusalem was conquered by the Romans. The other group, which is where I stand, believe in these scriptures that, that, that these have not yet transpired. The first two verses we'll see have already taken place, but much of this chapter and in, it is going to be future events that we're still waiting on to happen. Uh, you can pick your choice on which side you believe. Uh, I believe history uh, uh, tells us that it's already happened. I believe we're going to see it take place that way, uh, and we're going to see um, that if it's again i can't stress it enough especially when it comes to things like this if someone you know don't get into an argument over it with someone if they have a have an intelligent educated conversation a discussion but you're going to find that some people believe in a mid-tribulation rapture some people believe in a post-tribulation rapture and you have all these different end times views and, and don't 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 let it drive a wedge between a relationship with somebody that's that's important for us to know um and i also think and i think this is important too before we get started when it comes to the prophetic things, I don't think that we should consider ourselves, and, and I'm going to kind of make a little light of this, you shouldn't be a prophetic agnostic. 
In other words, you shouldn't go, well, uh, no one can understand it, so we don't really care. I don't, I, I'm nothing. It doesn't really make a difference. I think if Jesus took time to speak it and it's been recorded in the scriptures, we have an obligation to understand it or at least to do our best to understand it. And, and there's nothing wrong with saying, well, I'm not sure of something, but I think that we need to con continue to study and continue to show our self-approved and, and, and understand a position on it. We don't want to just, ah, I can't understand that. I don't care. I think I don't think that, that then really what we're doing if we say that is we're taking part of God's word and saying, well, I don't care about that part of and really the Lord's saying, I want to teach you. I want to show you. I'm telling you so you will have understanding, yet you somehow are rejecting the understanding. So I think it's important. So let's just let the scriptures speak for themselves. Chapter 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out, and he departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. In the previous chapter, Jesus had had a confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees. They had confronted him. They tried to trip him up in his words, and he had basically put them in their place. And he also spoke to the people about the scribes and Pharisees and, and what they were doing. Now he's leaving the temple. It says he's going out of the temple. And the language here indicates it's, it's a, a finality. It's, it's I'm not coming back. I'm not returning. I'm, I, I've, done, I've, I've done what I had to do here. I've said what I had to say, and I'm, and I'm leaving this place. He's already spoken to the scribes and the Pharisees and he's spoken about them to the people and as he's departing we read in the previous chapter that he actually wept over Jerusalem another gospel writer tells us he was on the Mount of Olives when this happened but either way he's leaving the temple and if you were to leave the temple mount you would travel down a rather steep incline you would go across the Kidron Valley then you would head up to the Mount of Olives if he was heading over towards Bethany which is where he likely was and as he's leaving, perhaps he's still weeping. He's sort of turned his back on the temple. He's walking away from there. The disciples come up to him and they say, look, Jesus, check it out. Do you see the great, big, beautiful buildings? It's magnificent. It's gorgeous. Do you see? And, and perhaps they're, 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 they're so impressed with the magnificence of the structure, they, they want to point it out. And, and maybe they're trying to cheer him up a little bit. Maybe they realize, hey, it's been a rough day in the temple. He's had a lot to say, and maybe, he's, maybe, maybe they're trying to cheer him up. Maybe it's their patriotic pride. Well, yeah, all right, so the scribes and Pharisees aren't good, but we have this great building. Look at this awesome building that we have. All's not lost. We've got a great temple here. And Jesus says to him, look, guys, do you see all these stones? Do you see all these stones in the future? There's not going to be left one stone standing upon another. None. There won't be a single one. To them, that's unfathomable. If you have been to Israel, and I've had the blessing of being there twice, when you look at the stones at which the Temple Mount is constructed, many of them are huge. They're monstrous. They're, 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 there's, there's some that are just so big, they don't even know how they got there because they, the modern machinery won't even put them in place. It's amazing when you see them. So to, for them to think, not one stone left upon another. I can't even fathom something like that. This temple that was built was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It had been the center of Jewish life for almost a thousand years. We learned in chapter 23, it actually had been, become customary to swear by the temple as Jesus rebuked them for it. Herod had expanded this temple. He made it larger. He made it more ornate. Essentially, what he did is he took a mountaintop, he built up retaining walls all around it, and then built a, you know, added on to the temple that was there, that was already existent. It was more ornate. It was very large. It took 80 years for Herod's uh, 
project to be completed. Interestingly enough, the temple only stood for seven years before it was destroyed after being completed. Josephus tells us the temple was covered with gold plates. And when the sun shone off them, it was blinding to look at. And where there was no gold, there was marble. So from a distance, it looked like there may have been snow on the temple because it was so bright and so shiny. It was an amazing thing to see. And the disciples say, Jesus, check it out. Maybe they're messed up, but look what we've got. And I want you to notice the disciples wanted to point out to Jesus, hey, Jesus, do you see the beauty of the buildings? Look at what man has built. Look at the buildings. Aren't the buildings amazing? Look at the things that a man have built. And Jesus replies, I love it. He says, do you not see all these things? He calls them things. They're stuff. They're just stuff. Do you not see all these things? It's like he's saying, it's just stuff. What are you so impressed with? It's not even going to last forever. Don't be impressed with this big, beautiful building. It's not even going to last 40 years. This big, beautiful, it took 80 years to build it. It's not going to make it very long. It wasn't even completed. They were still building it at that time. It's like he said literally, hey guys, every stone that you're calling beautiful will not even be standing in the future. It's all going to be torn down. In our lives, we too can become enamored with stuff. We can look at the big and the beautiful and be impressed and we can forget that it's only temporary. I've said it before, I'll say it again, it bears repeating. Everything you own will end up in the landfill someday. Your home will fall down unless it's rebuilt. Everything you own, whatever precious thing you have to have, it's going to end up in a landfill somewhere. It's just stuff. The truth is we should be impressed with the Lord. We should be enamored with his word and his promises. For those are the things that will endure forever. Think about that. So, it bears the question, did it happen? Did the temple continue standing or was it destroyed like Jesus said? It did happen. About 40 years after Jesus makes this statement, the Romans came and they conquered Jerusalem. And as they surrounded the city, the remaining Israelites fled into the temple for refuge. It was a strong building. It was a fortress. And the Roman soldiers surrounded the temple And church legend, as well as Josephus, tells us, and he refers to a fire, that a drunk soldier started a fire that began to burn in the temple. Now, the police in me says, wait a minute, it's built out of stone. Stones don't burn. But then I realized there's lots of other things that were in the temple as well. And they tell us that that fire burned so hot that the gold that was up on the roof began to melt. And as it began to melt, it ran down in all the cracks of all the stones. Well, what did the soldiers naturally want? They want the gold. They want the money. So how do you get the gold and the money? You've got to dismantle the temple. So history tells us they took the stones, they threw them off one another as they collected the gold that had burned and melted down into the cracks of the temple. They had to do it that way. And you go, well, is there any archaeological evidence that, that happened today? Is there, I mean, how much do we, do we really know about that? There actually is. It's amazing. Merrill, if you'd put up that per- first picture for me. You see that picture? That's the base of the Temple Mount. And if you see that road where the metal screen is right there, that's the ancient Roman road from the first century. Prior to being uncovered, it was much higher. They dug down, they found that road. Do you notice all the rocks laying there? Do you notice that the road looks like it's indented, like things have been pushed off and landed there? And you go, well, Rob, that could have happened anyway. I don't know. Merrill, would you put up the next picture? This happens to be one of the stones 
that was found right there on the corner on that Roman road. And if you look in the upper left-hand corner, you see some Hebrew writing in there. You can see that Hebrew writing? Uh, that, that, that has been shipped off. It's in a museum, but there's a replica there today. That Hebrew writing, what it says, it says the trumpeting place. The trumpeting place was the place up on the Temple Mount where the priest would trumpet to signify it's the beginning of a Sabbath, it's the end of a Sabbath, it's the beginning of a feast, it's the end of a feast, it's where they would blast the trumpets, let everyone know in Jerusalem that we're beginning the Sabbath today. So that, at one point, stood up on top of the Temple Mount. And it was pushed off just like Jesus happened to say, not one stone will be left upon another. Isn't it amazing that history proves it factual? You can go there and see it. When our next trip into Israel, we're going to go to that same place and I'll, I'll do a little teaching as we stand on that corner and the southern steps are right around the corner and we'll be able to see all of those things and you'll get a chance to see that. That road that they're walking on, that's the Roman road that they would have walked on in that day to come in and out. That would have been right there for them. So in order to get the gold, they dismantled the temple, exactly like Jesus said, pushing it over one stone at a time. This prophecy was fulfilled. It happened just like he said. It was fulfilled literally, just like he said it would. The temple was so completely destroyed. And let me just make it clear. Even today, they're not sure where it stood. They know where the temple mount is. They see the trumpeting place stone, but they don't know where it stood up on the temple mount because they're not sure. That's how, that, when it was dismantled, it's gone. They have no way of knowing. There's some speculation, but archaeologists still kind of, disagree and bicker back and forth about where it actually stood. I believe that the fulfillment of this prophecy in these first two verses should set the tone for what we're about to read in the coming verses. If this happened like he said it would, why would we ever doubt that what he says in the next verses would not happen, just like he says it will happen? Jesus's prediction, as he tells them, you can imagine as they disciples say, look at how big, beautiful, he tells them it's going to fall apart. You can nat naturally imagine that would bring up some questions in their mind. And look at verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, so begins Jesus. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives. Some would call it the Olivet Discourse. There he is. And it's a beautiful place. When you, when you get to visit it, you actually can... He may have been in the Garden of Gethsemane at this point. We're not sure exactly where he was on the Mount of Olives. But from anywhere on the Mount of Olives, you have a beautiful view of the Temple Mount. He would be sitting there off in the distance, looking, sitting with his apostles. They're looking at it. They see it off in the, in the distance. They can see the East Gate. They can see everything, the beautiful gate beyond the East Gate. They can see it all there just the way that we would read about it in Scripture. There he is on the hillside looking out over the Kidron Valley towards the temple. Disciples essentially ask him some questions. Some say two questions. Some say three. And they say, tell us, when will these things be? When's it going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. I don't think the disciples intended to divide these questions up. In other words, I think they, in their mind, they weren't asking three or two or three different questions. In their mind, they're probably thinking it all runs together. For certainly, if this building were destroyed, it must be the end of the age. In other words, it's, 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 it's the only way this could happen would be in the end of the age. And it's possible th they're thinking about the destruction of Solomon's temple. Back when the Babylonians came in and they realized, you know what, this was a national judgment against Israel back when the Babylonians do it. If it's getting destroyed, it's got to be the end of the age. 
Jesus' answer, as he begins, will focus on their second question. What will be the sign of your coming? What, Lord, what's going to be the sign? Give us, tell us what to look for. What should we be looking for for your coming, for your second coming? Look what he says there in verse 4. First, he gives them a warning. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Don't let yourself be deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. He starts with the warning. He says, you guys got to understand something. I don't want you to be deceived. Why would he tell them that? He says, because lots of people are going to be deceived. And don't we know that to be true over the years? Many, when it comes to end times, when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ, when it comes to his second coming, many people have been and are deceived. Many people will claim to be Jesus Christ. We've seen that throughout history. Many people will claim they know, I know when he's coming back. I know, what, I know exactly what day. I got the moons figured out. I got this figured out. Nobody knows. We, we don't know that. Don't be deceived. Don't follow them. Every time there's some false Messiah or some false prediction about the return of Jesus Christ, whether it be the rapture of the church or his second coming to earth, do you know what it ends up doing? It causes people to fall away from the church. They get, this, this is it, this is going to be it, and then it doesn't happen. It also causes people to look at the church and laugh. You foolish Christians. First he was coming there here, then he's coming there. Now, don't you know that he's not coming? It's been the same since the end, since the beginning of time. Now, Peter warned us about that, didn't he? He said, that's what they're going to tell you. He goes, but don't be deceived by that either. Don't be deceived. Listen carefully. There's one Messiah. Nobody knows when he's coming back for his church. We don't know exactly when his second coming will be at this point, but he's going to give us some insight. He's going to give us a sign to look for. As we look at verse 6, he's going to begin to describe the culture leading up to his return. He's going to describe the culture between his ascension and between his return, his second coming. So look what he says there. Verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. Don't let it bother you. For all these things must come to pass but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. In other words, this is the general description of the world between his ascension and his return. It's his second coming. They're not the things, you're not looking for these to mark the end of time. He says, this is how things are going to get. They're not specific signs. He told us, see that you're not troubled. Don't be bothered by these things. They have to come to pass, but the end's not yet. You're going to begin to see these things. It's almost like the disciples said, hey, Jesus, what's the end going to be? He goes, well, let me tell you what it's not first. Let me just share a little bit what it's not. And he's, let me tell you, it's not false messiahs. It's not going to find in wars. It's not going to be in earthquakes. It's not in a famine or it's not in pestilence. But all these things, he said, all these things are the beginning of, it's the beginning, it's the start of sorrows, or the beginning of sorrows. None of these events, in, none of these things individually are a sign that we need to be paying attention for, but collectively as a whole, we need, we need to say, hey, they're the beginning of sorrows. Now the phrase beginning of sorrows is interesting. It refers to childbirth. It, uh, uh, it re refers to a woman get, getting ready to give birth. She goes into contractions. First, they start out very mild, very far apart. And we all know what happens as she, as she gets closer and closer to delivery. The contractions come closer and closer together. The intensity, it doesn't get much, much harder, just a little bit harder, right? 
at least in my mind, that's, you know, I never had a kid, so. It's pleasant, yeah. <laughs> my wife said it's pleasant. Very sarcastically, might I add. <laughs> no, we know what happens. It, it starts out very mild. It's, it's almost somewhat exciting, and then all of a sudden it's like it gets unbearable. The pain just continues, and you can't wait for the end to come or for the child to be born. That's what he's saying. These are like labor pains. Just like the labor pains begin slowly and increase in intensity and frequency, we should expect the same thing from the things that he mentioned. They're going to start slowly and increase. Wars, famines, earthquakes will become more frequent and more intense before his return. I believe we see this happening. I think if you look around in our culture, you look at history, we can see this taking place. Do you realize just wars alone, World War I, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War, Gulf War, War on Terrorism, not to mention all the other wars going on that the United States is not involved in around the world, we see this taking place. And it sure seems to me like natural disasters are increasing. They're becoming more intense and they're becoming more frequent. People are dying from famine. One website reported that every second someone dies from hunger. Every second. So as we sit, and I can let a few seconds go by. One, two, three. They suggest that 36 million people per year. Now we know that most of those, if any of them, are not in the United States. Not many of them. But throughout the world, the rest of the world doesn't have the same government that we have. They don't have the same opportunity, the same wealth that we have. So it's happening in other places. This increase, he said, is not the end. It's, it's just starting. But it does indicate that it's getting closer. It's getting closer. You'll hear people say, oh, there's wars and rumors of war. All that means is it's getting closer. It doesn't mean we're at the end yet. In verse 9, Jesus tells his disciples what they can expect. It's almost like they said, all right, well, what about us, Lord? And he gives them a glimpse there of what's headed their way. Look what he says in verse 9. He's speaking to his disciples, remember. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached, will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. So there you are, you're a disciple. I just picture a nice sunny day in Jerusalem. You're sitting on the Mount of Olives. What's going to happen to us? They're going to kill you. That's not what I wanted to hear, Jesus. That's not, that's not what I have planned. Here's what you can expect, persecution. Life for you guys is going to get difficult. Before I come back, you'll be persecuted. And you will be tempted to think the end is near during the persecution, but it's not. Continue on. Persecution is not a specific sign of his coming, but yet he's saying it's taking place. We know from history it happened. We know they were persecuted. We know that, they were, we know that many of them fled Jerusalem. It, it, the persecution is what forced them to flee Jerusalem. When they fled, they took the gospel with them into all parts of the world. They took it with them to spread the gospel. Persecution served as a catalyst to spread the gospel. But the persecution also caused many people within the church to betray one another. Isn't that sad? Christians betraying one another. Persecution has a way of weeding out those who are not true Christians. It has a way of really challenging someone's faith. What do you really believe? Do you believe it enough to die for it? Or do you just believe it enough to, well, just, I just want to be social for the gospel. It's a social thing for me. No. 
Jesus also warned them. He said, hey, false prophets are going to rise up. They're going to be there. They're going to rise up. Many people will be deceived. You know what that means? It means the false prophets are going to be successful. They're going to be successful. Their ministries will be thriving. The seats will be filled. People will be, look at what's going on over there. What are all those people doing? All those people can't possibly be wrong. How do we tell? Here's what I think. When it comes to the word of God, it won't be present in their ministry. Oh, they might have a form of it. They might mention the Bible. They might put it on the screen, a verse here and a verse there, but it won't be the whole counsel of God. It'll be little bits and pieces. They will have twisted, reinterpreted, or completely disregarded the parts that the people don't want to hear. They won't be teaching the full counsel of God. It'll just be, well, I'm just going to tell you what you want. Let me, let me just tell you the good news. Well, with the good news is always bad news. You know, I don't, no, you're okay. You're fine. Don't worry about it. You don't need to change. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to teach those verses. I, I, don't wanna, I don't want you to be convicted by the Lord. Listen, there is nothing better than conviction by the Lord. If you come to church and you get convicted, you should praise him for it. That means the Holy Spirit's working in your life. If you come to church and you hear the word, ah, oh, who cares about that? That's sad. God's word doesn't, doesn't touch your heart. Doesn't mean you'll always get convicted. But if you're, if you're being convicted over sin, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. These false prophets will rise up. They will not be teaching the full counsel of God. Even false prophets are not the specific sign of his return. He told them lawlessness would abound. From the time Jesus ascends to heaven until he comes again, society will grow worse and worse. We will see lawless abound. But even that is not a specific sign. It's just collectively things that we're going to see to know, hey, the end is getting closer. What do we do, Lord? How should we behave? He told you, he who endures to the end shall be saved. You continue on. You endure to the end. You must endure because the gospel will be preached in all the world. Look at verse 14. It's what the church should be doing between the ascension and his second coming. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And that word nations can mean people groups. And then the end will come. What are we doing? We need to be preaching the gospel. We need to be enduring. But we're being persecuted. Who cares? You continue on. The mission is at hand. Before the end, the gospel will go out to the whole world. None of these painful and difficult things that are happening in the world or in the lives of the believers will prevent the spread of the gospel in fact what we see in history is it actually uh, we, it served as a catalyst to spread the gospel people were forced to flee and they took the gospel with them all right jesus has told the disciples there are certain specific signs that will happen but there's not any individual signs yet they're collectively there's going to be false teachers. There'll be rumors of wars. There'll be famine. There'll be pestilence, earthquakes. These are the beginning of sorrows, he said. He says, you guys will be persecuted. You'll be delivered up to tribulation. You'll be killed. Christians will betray one another. The love of many will grow cold. But while this is happening, the gospel is going out. Praise the Lord. Gospel is still being spread. So Lord, if these are not specific signs, how will we know when you're coming back? What should we be looking for? Look there at verse 15 as he tells them what to look for. And when you see it, you'll know that he's coming back. Verse 15. Therefore, when you see, in other words, this is what you're looking for, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where? In the holy place. Whoever reads, let him 
understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Remember, the disciples asked a question. They said, what's the sign of your coming? Jesus said, let me tell you, here's the sign. When you see the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about. When you see that, that's the sign you're looking for. So that brings us to the question, what's the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about? What, what is he, what, you lost me there, Rob. What is that? Please remember, let me be clear here. There's a difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ. What we're speaking of here in this passage is the second coming. It's Christ's return to earth, okay? The abomination, this is not, he's not speaking, we're not looking at when is, when is the rapture of the church going to happen? We're not talking about that right now. We're talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he returns to earth. In regard to these, the first two verses we just read, let me just make a point. By the fact that Jesus refers to what Daniel wrote, it validates Daniel's writings. Sometimes people say, well, I don't know if I can trust Daniel. Well, Jesus trusted him because he said, you better pay attention. The sign that Daniel gave you, that's what you need to watch for. Well, I don't really think that, how did it, I'm not sure I agree. Well, Jesus agreed with it enough. He, he quoted it. He's, he's the one referring to it. It gives validity to Jan, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11, Daniel chapter 12. For it, it, it just proves that it's reliable. If, it's, if Jesus will quote it, that makes it reliable to me. So what is the abomination of desolation? The abomination or the word abomination was used to describe an extremely offensive form of idolatry. Something extremely, our abomination is, it's not just I'm a little bit offended, I am extremely offended. Jesus says, someone, I believe it's the Antichrist, will stand, where did he say they would stand? In the holy place, and they would commit this abomination of desolation, this form of idolatry. Well, what will he do? What, 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 will, what will this person do? Paul gives us a little more information in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let me just read it for you. If you could turn there quickly, you're welcome to. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let me pick up in verse 3. Paul's telling the church in Thessalonica, let no one deceive you by any means. Again, another warning. Don't be deceived. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The man of sin is revealed. This is the Antichrist, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Just real quickly from Daniel chapter 12, gives us a little more information. And from that time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So when you put all that together, here's what you have. The abomination of desolation is when somebody, and I think Paul makes it clear there, it's the Antichrist. When the Antichrist stands in the temple and demands to be worshipped as God. At some point in the future, 
the Antichrist will stand in the temple that will be, there is no temple right now in, in Israel. I believe it will be rebuilt at some point and it will be during the tribulation period. He will stand in the temple and declare himself to be God and demand the Jewish people begin to worship him as God. Daniel tells us when that happens, there's 1,290 days until Christ comes back. So the moment we see that happen, the moment that happens, that we know that there's 1,200, that's three and a half years if you do the math, Remember, a Jewish year is 360 days, not 365, so it runs right about three and a half years. Jesus will come back. So when that happens, we are no longer wondering when he's coming back. We know exactly when he's coming back, 1,290 days. Hopefully he won't be here when that happens. Remember, he's talking about the second coming. I believe the church will be raptured out before that takes place. Okay? Everybody with me? Good. Some people believe that the abomination of desolation has already happened. They think it took place in the first century when the Romans came and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. There's a few problems with that theory, and I just want to point them out. Number one, and perhaps one of the big problems, it's been more than 1,280 days since that would have happened, and Christ has not come back to earth. He's not ruling and reigning, unless we're in the millennial reign, and some will suggest that we are, but I don't see the things happening in Scripture that would indicate that we're in the millennial reign. Number two, there is really no good evidence at all to suggest the abomination of desolation has happened. The Roman armies or their ensigns were never set up as idolatrous images in the holy place of the temple. In fact, what history tells us, the historical evidence indicates the temple was surrounded, it was burned down, it was pushed over. So they would have, they would have burned it before they entered it. If they did that, there'd be no reason for them to set up there. And if they killed everybody, there's no reason to demand that they get worshipped as God. So that doesn't really fit in there. Number three, Jesus was very specific about where the abomination would take place, in the holy place. And again, since it was burned, when it comes to that scripture, for those that believe it already happened, they have to reinterpret the holy place to mean a holy city. It'll take place someplace in Jerusalem. So they kind of have to reinterpret that a little bit. Now, let me say this. I completely understand the mistake. I can see where it would happen. I, I, I get it. And please, let me make it very, very clear. Just because someone has a different opinion of me in that, I'm okay with someone believing differently than me. That's fine. That doesn't mean that they're not saved. It doesn't mean that, I, that I'm smarter than they are. It just means we have a difference of opinion. There's no reason to go to war over that. But I understand how you could come to those conclusions because after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, it appeared there would never again be a temple. I mean, think about that. From 70 AD, you passed 100 AD, you passed 200 AD, you passed 300, 400, 500, 600, 700, 800, 1100, 1200, and it wasn't until 1948 that Israel became a nation again. That's amazing. That's unbelievable. So you can understand how the people that even lived several hundred years before us, as they look at the scripture, it's impossible. There is no nation Israel anymore. They don't exist. They're not even on the map anymore. Oh, but little did they know that through the Holocaust... God was working. God says, I'm going to give you that land back. I gave you that land. I, yes, you've been moved out of it, but that's not the first time God moved them out. He moved them out in Babylon. I, this land belongs to Israel. I'm, I'm putting you there. It's interesting to me as we study these, how faithful God has been to the nation Israel. It's amazing. Do you realize they're the only people group to survive over two, well, almost 2,000 years without a country? Most groups of people, when they are conquered and moved into another civilization, they assimilate and become part of that civilization. The Jewish people remained Jewish people. They, were, they, they stuck to who they were for, for almost 2,000 years. 
we know the Lord was with them. We see what the Lord was doing there. Today, you can go up on the Temple Mount. You can walk there. We've been there the last two trips of Israel. We're going to try to go there again. We've been able to actually walk our feet across the same stones that Jesus would have walked on. First century, it's still there. Now, there's a problem with building a temple on the Temple Mount. It's controlled by the Muslims. The Dome of the Rock sits there. But that, too, is not too great of a problem for Jesus or for the Lord to handle. He will rebuild the temple there one day. Interestingly enough, there's an organization in Israel. It's called the Temple Institute. And they have recreated, built, fabricated all of the temple products needed to sacrifice everything that they need to the exact specifications of the Old Testament. They're waiting in anticipation for a new temple to be built. They are, they are tracking the Levitical priesthood through DNA to try and identify who was in the tribe of Levi. They're, they're going back and trying to get all of this thing squared away so that someday when the temple is rebuilt, they can institute sacrifices just like they did in the past. They're, they're planning it. It's, it's already in the works. You, you can, we can take a trip to the Temple Institute and see the menorah that they've built. You can see all the, 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 the you can see everything that they've built. The, the altars, it's all there. You can see it. They put it all together. They're just waiting for the building to be erected. I believe it will be. Before we go any further, let me remind you that this is being written to the Jews, to the Jewish people. As Christians, again, we I don't believe we'll see this abomination of desolation. I believe as Christians, we will be taken out of the world before the tribulation period happens. This abomination of desolation, we know it. We know the tribulation is seven years because it happens three and a half years from the end. We know it's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation period. So he's ministering, he's speaking, he's letting the Jewish people know, this is, you want to look for a sign? This is what you look for. Incidentally, this is when the Jewish eyes will be opened. This is when they will realize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. With this information, let me read it to you again in context, starting in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 24. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been, seen, not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. That's Israel there. That's who he's referring to. He's writing to Israel, the elect's sake. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. Great signs and wonders. They're going to be doing really cool things. If possible, try to deceive even the elect. That's Israel. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. These events are yet to occur. As they led up to 70 AD, the disciples and many Christians fled Jerusalem because of the persecution. And even though I believe the abomination of desolation is a future event, there is no doubt, in some ways, the catastrophe that came upon 
Jerusalem in 70 AD is some sort of foreshadowing of what was to take place. We don't just dismiss it and go, it has nothing to do with it. I think it's a picture of what's going, what, what, was to, what was to take place. Perhaps a foreshadowing of what would come. Just to remind you one more time of that prophetic timeline. And I, I know I've repeated it three or four times, but I, I want to make sure you guys understand as you study the scriptures. The next, next thing to happen, I believe, will be the rapture of the church. The church will be taken out of the earth. We will be tucked away into heaven. Then there'll be a short period of time. Nobody knows how long it will be. There'll be a short period of time where an antichrist will come on the scene and rise to power. And perhaps he's even rising to power as the church, right before the church is taken out. But he's in the process of coming to power. At some point after he's in power, there's going to be a seven-year period that will begin with him making a peace treaty between the Muslim nation and Israel. I believe the temple will be rebuilt, sacrifices will, be, will begin halfway through that seven-year tribulation. That's the 70th week that Daniel chapter 9 talks about. That's where it's represented. And I know if you don't get it, just follow with me here. Halfway through, the Antichrist will stand in the Jewish temple and demand to be worshipped, by, worshipped as God. No, he, will, can, he will call himself God. He will demand they worship him as God. They begin sacrificing to him. That is the abomination of desolation of spoken by the prophet Daniel. From there, the Jewish people will flee. Many people think they're going to flee to Petra. On our last trip over to Israel, went into Jordan. We actually went to Petra. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rock city that's been cut into the rock. Plenty of places to hide. It's an easy place to defend militarily because there's only one way in the front of it. You can, you can defend it very easily. They'll be, they'll be fleeing from that. Why? Because all of a sudden, this peace treaty will have fallen apart and he will be demanding they, that he's worshipped as God. Their eyes will be opened that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Many of them will come to faith in Jesus Christ at that moment. But they're going to flee for a next difficult three and a half years. At the end of that three and a half years, we know that from the abomination of desolation to the end, 1,200 and, was it 80 days? I forget, 90 days, whatever it was, I think 80, 1,280 days, Christ will come back. He will come back. At that point, he'll begin to set up the millennial kingdom. We will rule and reign with him for 1,000 years. From that 1,000-year period, he will destroy the earth as we know it. We've been studying that about him taking, in him all things consist. He will create a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem where evil will be gone. It will no longer exist. Satan will be bound in, in the lake of fire. And we will then, those that are believers or became believers during the tribulation, will, will then be ruling and reigning on the earth with him with pure righteousness and no presence of evil. What a process we've got to go through to get it. <laughs> You say, you know what, Rob, why doesn't he just make it a little bit easier? If he'd have just wrote this out verse by verse the way you just explained it, I would, have had, I would have understood it a lot better that way. You know, I think he wanted every generation to think that this is the generation he's coming back in. Because if he'd have said to the apostles, I'll be back in a few thousand years, what would that have done to Christianity? Throughout the couple thousand, oh, we got plenty of time. We got plenty of time. Mom and dad aren't coming home for an hour yet. I can do all kinds of stuff. <laughs> My boys didn't think that was funny. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I, I think it's imperative that we expect that we don't know when he's coming back. A little bit later, he's going to get into what, we're, what we call the rapture of the church. He's going to tell us that nobody knows when that's going to happen. That's going to begin the, what we know as the day of the Lord. That will begin that process of what I just described to you. So if I lost you tonight, I'm sorry. I'd like to keep going, but I, I think... I gave you guys enough to chew on for tonight. I don't want to 
I don't want to overwhelm you too much. Jesus is not done talking. He's got a lot more to say. We'll pick up next week right where we left off like we always do. And I think you will continue to see uh, just this amazing prophecy as it unfolds uh, before us. So let's pray. Father, sometimes the scriptures can be difficult to understand, but yet you've challenged us by putting them there. We know that you want to speak to us through them. We know that there's something to say that you want us to be aware. Lord, may we not just be apathetic towards your word in in any portion, even if prophecy does not something that excites us. Lord, we, we need to understand, we need to know it. It's something we need to be aware of. For many times it's the prophetic word. The fact that you said the temple would be destroyed and it was destroyed. That brings validity to your word. You've said it, it's happened. Why should we not believe that everything else you said will continue to happen? In fact, I do believe it. And I pray that everyone here does. Lord, I just pray that you'd continue to give us understanding. Help us to take your word. Put it into our hearts. Apply it to our lives. May we take the hope that you've given us, the promises, and hang on to them. Lord, thank you for all that you've done. Thank you that you're not silent, but you're revealing yourself to us. It's your desire that we know these things. Thank you for teaching them to us. In Jesus' name.